This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Holly Brady, and I'm the director of the Stanford Publishing Courses, a division of Stanford University that offers executive education courses for professionals working in the magazine and book publishing industry. Tonight's public conversation with three experts in political campaign messaging is co-sponsored by Stanford Publishing Courses and the Aurora Forum. This is the third consecutive year in, that we have partnered with the Aurora Forum to present what has come to be known as the Newsweek Evening. It's a special conver conversation about media and politics made possible by an endowment in honor of the late Maynard Parker, Stanford alumnus, and former Newsweek editor. Maynard was a longtime supporter of Stanford Publishing Courses, where he spoke to media professionals on a regular basis. The director of the Aurora Forum, Mark Gonerman, can't be here tonight, but he wants you to know that the audio, video, and transcript versions of this conversation will soon be posted on the Aurora Forum website, auroraforum.org. So tonight we will follow the standard format for, of approximately 45 minutes of onstage conversation, followed by another 45 minutes of conversation inspired by your questions and answers and comments. If when we get to that point in the evening you have a contribution to make, please line up behind the microphones in the aisles. We have University Pre Vice President David Demarest with us as our moderator this evening, and he will be introducing our guests, but let me introduce him first. On his way to Stanford, where he arrived in 2005, he served four years as a member of the White House senior staff for President George H.W. Bush. As White House Communications Director, he worked directly with the President, the White House Chief of Staff, and the Cabinet overseeing a broad range of White House communications activities, including presidential speech writing, media relations, and intergovernmental affairs. Here at Stanford, he is the Vice President of Public Affairs, overseeing the university's relationship with the government, the community, and the media. And I'm gonna leave it to David to introduce our off-campus guests. Please join me in welcoming them all to the Aurora Forum Stanford Newsweek. Let me add my welcome. Uh, I'm delighted to be your moderator tonight. Um, I am joined on the stage by Newsweek senior editor and columnist Jonathan Alter and Republican media and political strategist Dan Schnur. And I'll introduce uh, each of them uh, in a little bit more detail a little bit later. Um, as you heard, our program will follow the usual format that has been the hallmark of Stanford University's Aurora Forum. We'll do a bit of scene setting up here uh, with the discussion that will follow. And after that, I'll open it up for questions from the audience. Uh, as you can see, uh, we all got our uh, outfits coordinated for this <laughs> evening. Um, so uh, just to get us into the mood for tonight, because we're going to be talking about uh, uh, media and politics. Uh, we thought we'd just air a video that has uh, gotten some uh, notoriety. I've had a conversation with all of you, and so far, we haven't stopped talking, and that's really good. I intend to keep 
telling you exactly where I stand on all of the issues. I'm looking at how to help you and other people who are hardworking like you. And I've really been impressed by how serious people are. Because we all need to be part of the discussion if we're all going to be part of the solution. I don't want people who already agree with me. I want honest, experienced, hardworking, patriotic people who want to be part of a team, the American team. Uh, I hope you've learned a little bit more about uh, what I'm believing and trying to do and really help this conversation about our country get started. I hope to keep this conversation So, get you in the mood. <laughs> uh, to kick things off, I'd like to talk a little bit about history. Um, if you uh, think back over the last 50 years, uh, politicians have been trying to use uh, emerging technologies to further their own objectives, to uh, communicate with various publics, and to uh, make an impression um, in ways that uh, uh, prior to those technologies being uh, in vogue, uh, they were able to do. Uh, if you go all the way back to FDR with fireside chats, uh, that was the first time that radio uh, was really used to uh, bring the presidency and the president into the homes of uh, everyday Americans. Prior to that, uh, how did they uh, uh, relate to the president? Uh, probably through the occasional newspaper article, but here they were hearing the voice of the president uh, in some cases for the very first time. If you fast forward to uh, 1952, uh, uh, there was a uh, vice presidential candidate named Richard Nixon who was trying to save his spot on the Republican ticket and in a uh, very unusual uh, moment he decided that he would uh, go on the public airwaves on TV, then a brand new medium and talk to the American people and defend himself against some of the accusations that had been made about him. Uh, Eisenhower was ready to drop him from the ticket, and Nixon did what has become known as the Checkers speech. And uh, Checkers for the name of the dog that uh, uh, was given to his uh, children. And at the end of his uh, little story about getting this dog as a gift, he said, no matter what they say about me, we're going to keep him. <laughs> what people don't realize is that uh, the intelligentsia and the media panned that speech, said it was maudlin, manipulative, but at the end of that speech, parts of the speech that weren't really uh, well known in today's culture, he had, a, he had delivered a broadside against the Democrats and communism that inspired people to write and wire to the Republican National Committee asking that he stay on the ticket. And those telegrams ran 300,000 to 1,000 for him to stay on the ticket. And it left Eisenhower no choice but to keep him on the ticket. 
You go to 1960, the Kennedy-Nixon debates. The first time that kind of dialogue, that kind of uh, conversation took place in front of the American people. And uh, just as uh, uh, Nixon saved his, his uh, position on the ticket in 1952 through television, some could argue that he lost it on television in 1960. Um, many uh, uh, historians say that uh, if you listen to the Nixon-Kennedy debates on the radio, you'll think Nixon won. If you see them on TV, you'll think Kennedy won. And everyone remembers the five o'clock shadow uh, that Nixon wore, and it was in comparison to the young and vibrant uh, Kennedy. And many people attribute that to Nixon's narrow loss in 1960. There weren't going to be debates again until 1976 between Ford and Carter. And uh, at that time, uh, it was a tight race, and some would say that Gerald Ford lost the election because of an awkward and puzzling answer about Poland. Uh, and uh, I was managing a congressional race that year, and we lost by 1%. And uh, I always thank Gerald Ford for that. Uh, in uh, 1988, two of the most famous images from that campaign were uh, a phrase that George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, my colleague Dan Schnur, whispered to me that I will be emphasizing for the rest of my life the HW, uh, uh, and he may be right. Um, but the famous phrase, read my lips, no new taxes, that he said about a thousand times, uh, but first at the convention in 1988. And uh, that image uh, was a popular cultural reference uh, that uh, captured the essence of his commitment not to raise taxes. The other image that is quite memorable from that 88 campaign was one of uh, the Democratic candidate, Michael Dukakis, uh, having an ill-advised ride in a tank. And uh, people like Dan and myself uh, took every opportunity to share with as many people as we could uh, that image of Michael Dukakis in the tank. Why? Because he was trying to show that he was a, uh, he was trying to burnish his image as being strong on defense. But it became a caricature. And many of the pundits talked about the look of Michael Dukakis in the, ta in the tank was more like uh, the Peanuts cartoon strip character Snoopy. Now, if you look at that read my lips issue, that same issue came back to haunt uh, uh, the first President Bush and was one reason among many others that he was not reelected. Uh, speaking of uh, 1992, which was the year that the senior Bush uh, lost to Bill Clinton, for all of the smart, uh, techie things that we did in the Bush campaign of 88, uh, the tables were turned on us in 1992. And if you look at how uh, Bill Clinton's campaign uh, took message management to a new level, had campaign discipline that we did not have in 92, and their use of new communications platforms like talk, uh, uh, TV talk shows and MTV to communicate to an electorate uh, the uh, impression that uh, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush was 
uh, out of touch and ultimately out of office. Um, so let's fast forward to today. I'd argue that today, uh, the difference between today's political media environment and that of 92 is probably as vast as the political media environment from 1992 back 30 or 40 years. The transformation just in these last 15 years has been extraordinary and uh, it, is, uh, it is hard to believe that in just 15 years so many things have happened uh, in terms of media and uh, technology. Everyone, uh, the internet touches virtually everyone's lives. Everyone can be an author, everyone can be in the audience. Cell phones are on everyone's belt along with their Blackberries, their iPods, and maybe some of those are being replaced with iPhones. But the convergence of technologies is really extraordinary. And when it comes to politics, one third of all Americans either read or share campaign news online. And this may surprise you, but three quarters of them are over 30. Uh, Senator, Senator Obama's site uh, had 650,000 visitors just this past April. Senator Clinton had 500,000 and it is a brave new technological landscape indeed. And how the politics of 2008 will unfold across this landscape, or because of this landscape, is our subject tonight. And I couldn't be more delighted to have the two guests that we have tonight. So I'm gonna introduce first uh, Jonathan. Jonathan's been with Newsweek since 83, um, and has been uh, senior editor and columnist since 97. And in the 80s, he was Newsweek's uh, uh, media uh, critic. Uh, he's covered six presidential campaigns, authored more than 50 Newsweek cover stories, and he is the author of The Defining Moment, FDR's 100 Days, and The Triumph of Hope. Awards too numerous to mention, so I won't try. No stranger to academia, Harvard graduate, visiting professor of press at pol and politics at Princeton in the 90s, I believe. And so it is my pleasure to offer up the stage to Jonathan to have a few opening remarks. Thanks, thanks, David. Uh, um, I think you teed it up really well. I just wanted to uh, emphasize something that may have escaped people's attention, which is uh, that, as Holly mentioned, um, this evening is really in honor of uh, one of my mentors and my longtime boss, uh, who was the editor-in-chief of Newsweek for many years, Maynard Parker, who was very involved with Stanford uh, activities. So I, I, I just uh, you know, want to make sure that everybody gets that. And Maynard's most famous line within Newsweek, and it became pretty well known uh, throughout uh, uh, print journalism at least, um, was when there was a big story, Maynard, who had covered the war in Vietnam, would say, we've got to scramble the jets. It's a military, <laughs> it's a military term for when, uh, you know, you're sending up some fighter aircraft to uh, engage in uh, hostilities. And what he meant by that was, we have to be on this story really fast. Um, but in those days, uh, when Maynard was running the magazine, that meant uh, we've got to uh, get a lot of reporting mobilized so that a week from now, or four or five days from now, when Newsweek came out, uh, we would be on top of the story. Um, and if Maynard were alive today, it would be 
we're going to scramble the jets the way they do in the military. So like within an hour, we have something up on our website that is responding to this breaking news or providing some context for otherwise covering it. And so the, t well, the big change with the technology is that the time horizons, both for the media and for the uh, politicians, have shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And everything now is instantaneous. Uh, and you know what I'm saying, or what any of us are saying right now, could easily be uh, what David was talking about has already been probably been blogged by somebody who's in the in the audience. Um, so that creates its own uh, reality that 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 changes the playing uh, field. And the great innovation of the Clinton campaign in 1992, which I covered and that I think was harmful for for you guys, was the War Room, James Carville's War Room. Rapid response, they call it. You got to be on something, you know, in in the next news cycle. Um, but uh, in those days, despite the presence of MTV getting involved in the campaign, and I was working part time as a consultant for MTV that year um, on those town meetings and interviews that they were doing with the candidates. Um, but still, the spine of the campaign was the evening news. And the, it all played out, not, not in the paid television advertising as it does in a Senate or gubernatorial campaign, but in a presidential campaign, the evening news was the organizing principle uh, for the campaign. And that has been obliterated. Um, that is no longer the way these, uh, these campaigns operate. They have to be all over the battlefield. Uh, they can't just fight along one front um, in, in, on the evening news anymore. Um, and it requires a tremendous level of creativity uh, in uh, the different campaigns to, to think about how they can best exploit uh, the new opportunities in new media and also a recognition that they've essentially lost control of the process uh, and that user-generated content like we saw with that that uh, Obama ad that the Obama <laughs> campaign had nothing to do with, um, you know, it has really changed the game. I think it's great that there's less control by both the mainstream media and by the campaigns. It's good for democracy when those old hierarchies break down. And we, we, over the course of the evening, we can get into some of the disadvantages of it uh, for the process, which are, are also considerable, but I think we should start out uh, by by acknowledging that that overall it's it's a good thing, especially on the fundraising end. Whatever one thinks of Obama, the fact that uh, he raised over thirty million dollars from two hundred and fifty thousand different contributors is really good for democracy. Great. Now I'm going to turn it to Dan. Dan Schnur is one of California's le leading uh, political and media strategists. He's worked on four presidential campaigns, three gubernatorial campaigns. In 1988, we were colleagues in the Bush campaign. Five years as chief spokesman for California Governor Pete Wilson. He was John McCain's communications director in the 2000 race. Uh, if, you were a if you are a Californian, which many of you are, uh, you'd also hear him on KGO and KSFO doing political commentary or read him in the LA Times, the Sacramento Bee, uh, or the San Francisco, Co uh, San Francisco Chronicle uh, on the op-ed page. Also no stranger to university life, uh, Dan teaches both at the University of Southern California 
and at a small, uh, I think it's a community college <laughs> up the road here, uh, Cal, something like that. Um, um, Dan is uh, a graduate of American University and a, and a good friend. Over to you. Well, uh, first of all, um, David, I want to thank you for that very gracious introduction. <laughs> um, it may not have sounded like that much to many of you, but as a Republican who teaches at the University of California, Berkeley, that's the nicest thing anyone has said about me on a college campus <laughs> in, um, in quite a while, so I appreciate it. I also appreciate the reference to the McCain 2000 campaign. Something tells me I'll be emphasizing 2000 the same way you emphasize HW <laughs> when you talk about your former uh, employment. Um, I also want to thank all of you for not only having me here tonight, but having me back. I had the great privilege of talking to this gathering three years ago. And as Jonathan can attest, particularly as the campaign season heats up, people like us, and we can define that term a little bit later, get invited to talk to a great deal of these types of gatherings. But speaking at least for myself, I very rarely get, invi inv get invited back a second time. So it's very, very nice of you and gracious of you and optimistic and hopeful of you uh, <laughs> to have me back here again. Um, I'm gonna take the liberty in my opening remarks to rename tonight's discussion because I don't think it's appropriate to talk about new media campaigning. Because my students at both Cal and at USC point out to me, this is not new media. Um, I don't think it's appropriate to talk about online campaigning any more than we now talk about television campaigning. Maybe in the days of the Checkers speech, in the days of the Kennedy-Nixon debate, it was appropriate to talk about campaigning on television. But over the last generation or two, television campaigning and campaigning have become synonymous. And new media campaigning and campaigning, I think, have become equally synonymous in this uh, brave new political world. And so I'd suggest to you instead that we talk about tonight rather as the, futures of, the future of campaigning, or if you will, the iPodization of American politics. Now, I'm gonna back up just a half step for a moment here to tell you about a, a family member of mine um, my cousin Phoebe, who is 11 years old, and this Friday I'm flying to Minneapolis, Minnesota because Phoebe is the only girl playing in her little league, for her Little League All-Star team, and I promised her I would, uh, would come watch her play. But let me tell you about Phoebe for a second. Phoebe's telev favorite television programs, and for those of you who are parents of young girls or young boys in the audience, you'll recognize these names. The rest of you will have to take my word for it. Her favorite TV shows are Hannah Montana and Kim Possible. And I asked her, we were talking on the phone recently, I asked her about, we were talking about my visit, and I asked her when her favorite television shows were on. When, did, when, did, when, when were they on? And she didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> She's a smart girl, she gets A's in school. These, these are her two shows. She's only allowed two television programs per her parents. And I said, well, yeah, are they on before dinner? Are they on after dinner? Are they on Saturday? Are they on Sunday? And she said, well, yes. <laughs> because just like I have never grown up, I never lived in a world without television, she has never lived, at least not been aware of living in a world without TiVo, in a world without YouTube. Kim Possible and Hannah Montana are on television whenever she wants them to be. And so seven years from now, when she votes for the first time, she's going to look at the way candidates and campaigns communicate with her in an entirely different way than all of us do. And my students, both at Cal and at USC, who are a voting age, do the same thing. 
um, they watch TV on their own terms. Unlike us growing up who had five buttons on our car radio, they listen to music on their own terms. Unlike those of us growing up who waited for our little brothers or sister to get off the phone so we could use them, <laughs> they email and they IM on their own terms. They're not used to being part of a disempowered audience. They are used to being part of the conversation. And just as they are empowered when it comes to television, when it comes to music, when it comes to interpersonal communication, they expect that same array of options and that same degree of power when it comes to politics. So the great thing about the iPodization of politics is that it empowers the audience. And it therefore encourages potential audience members to participate. You don't have to wait for the candidate to give a speech. You can go online, you can go to a blog, you can send an email, you can call a talk radio show. There's all sorts of ways to become part of the conversation and that is empowering and that is terrific. And that is the kind of scene, thing that we have seen in the past with Obama and before that with Howard Dean and before that with John McCain. Candidates savvy enough to use the, what us old people call new media in order to empower and engage an audience. But there's a downside as well, which I'll mention briefly and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk more about later, that is empowering as this media can be. It's also isolating. And what I worry about, what I worry about is that when we have an array of not just three news programs at 6.30 at night, and not just five radio, station, five radio stations on our, on our car radio, but when we have 800 cable TV channels, when we have an infinite number of radio stations, and an even is there something larger than infinite? And a larger than infinite number of websites, blogs, and email correspondence opportunities, it becomes much, much easier for us to pick and choose who we talk to, what we talk about, and what we hear. When I was growing up, my father, who is a otherwise reasonable man, but an ardent Democrat, <laughs> my father, who voted for Howard Dean, even though he thought he was too conservative, <laughs> my father and I would watch the evening news together. And when the news ended, we would come to radically different, have come to radically different impressions about what we had seen. But at least we'd be drinking from the same information pool. If my dad's watching Bill Maher, and I'm listening to Rush Limbaugh, if he's at the Daily Kos, and I'm at Town Hall, if he's listening to NPR and I'm watching Fox, not only are we coming to different conclusions about the news of the day, we're drinking from entirely different pools of information and experiencing entirely different realities. Now, to me, the empowering aspects of the iPodization of American politics far outweigh the potential for polarization. And I think there actually is a great future that comes in from the generations that follow ours, and we'll talk about those in just a minute. But I think as we move forward through these conversations, it's worth realizing that we're not talking about new media campaigning. We're not talking about online campaigning. We're not talking about video or YouTube campaigning. We're talking about campaigning. And someday people like us, but younger, are going to look back at that Hillary video or its yet-to-be-produced successor the same way Dave and Jonathan and I look back at the Checkers speech or at the Kennedy-Nixon debate. So to take this out of the context of the internet and outside of the context of YouTube, and I think put it inside of a broader societal conversation, is the best thing we can do as we move the conversation forward. Thank you. Terrific. You know, there's a... Uh There's a name for the, uh, the system that you describe where 
you can be isolated from anything that you don't want to really listen to. And it's called the daily me. It's all about me. And people can decide what kind of information they want to hear. They want to do exactly as Dan was talking about. And that has tremendous implications for the world in which you live uh, in, uh, in the uh, media business. And so I'm going to start with Jonathan tonight uh, to get this conversation going. You know, you were schooled in a world where, uh, which is now kind of referred to as traditional media. Um, and you're now working at the center of a totally changed and evolving and transforming media environment. Reportedly, uh, Bill Clinton once said of you, <coughs> uh oh, <laughs> I quote, Alter bites me in the ass sometimes, but at least he knows what we're trying to do. Presumably, you knew what he was trying to do because you did the hard work of reporting, you followed leads, you found sources, you did your homework on the issues, you got access to key figures, including the president. Is that kind of reporting being eclipsed by the Drudge Reports, the new digital platforms, or bypassed by the candidates as they try to not allow reporters disintermediate their message to voters by working with reporters? Well, some of it just is, uh, you know, a function of who's in office at a particular time. I mean, I, uh, you know, I met Bill Clinton in 1984, and I uh, interviewed him uh, at least two or three times a year every year he was president, and I haven't interviewed George W. Bush since the 2000 campaign. And the New York Times uh, went five years without anybody from that newspaper interviewing President Bush. So, current, uh, right? The current, current. current President Bush. W. So, <laughs> you know, some of those, some of these are just, uh, you know, they relate to sort of the polarization of, of the press and, and, and are not strictly related to technology. but. Um, I think just to pick up on Dan's point, um, for all the advantages in democratization, uh, and, and I don't want to say that as kind of like a, uh, just an offhand comment. I think it's profoundly important that people can participate and have access in ways that they didn't in the past. A lot of times people on blogs will have much better insights than I could have. I believe in the wisdom of crowds and that if you have a lot more peace people uh, participating, you're going to get uh, new insights into things. But I do think we have uh, what Dan was referring to and what I call the politics uh, of validation and that people go to sources of information that validate what they already believe rather than challenging what they believe and provoking them to think and act anew, as Abraham Lincoln said. And it's much more comfortable to just go to Daily Coast if you're a liberal or Town Hall if you're a conservative than it is to be, you know, looking around and sampling a lot of different ideas. So I think that's a troublesome uh, trend. Um, the uh, the definition of good journalism that I believe in, that H.L. Uh, that uh, A.J. Liebling talked about, was that it was our job to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And uh, I, but the problem is that 
if the, uh, if the comfortable are not listening to you because you're not agreeing them or comforting them, you get a different sort of journalism where, where you afflict the already afflicted and you comfort the already comfortable. Uh, and that's also driven by market forces because if you're saying things that are uncomfortable for your audience and you're provoking them, they might not buy your product. So when we moved from an era of uh, you know, the Hearsts and the McCormicks, it really started here in San Francisco with, with Hearst, where uh, media barons who were, were trying to get their ideas across and didn't care so much about the bottom line in a particular product uh, were replaced by corporate ownership where it's all about the bottom line. It becomes much harder to uh, do unpop potentially unpopular journalism. And the bigger problem economically, and this is really troublesome, is that the model, the foundation of uh, media is uh, advertising and circulation. And when you know, circulation is just obliterated by, by the internet because it becomes almost like a meaningless concept. Uh, and advertising is growing rapidly on the internet, but from such a small uh, basis that it can't, it, it, the old media is going to die before new media can support as much as uh, what it uh, needs to. So you're getting a situation where the seed corn, the basis of all of what people uh, you know, chew over is reporting. You've got to, if you're going to comment on things on a blog, you've got to have the basic reporting, right? And the problem that in a nutshell is that talk is cheap and reporting is expensive. So it's real cheap to just, you know, sit in your PJs on a blog and, and you know, re-chew something that somebody has dug up. It's real expensive to have a Baghdad bureau, or in political terms, to send somebody out on a, on, on a campaign right. plane where they're charging you uh, through, the, through the nose you know, thousands of dollars a day. So what you end up getting is less reporting and more commentary. And I'm all for commentary because I'm a columnist. But at a certain point, you know, I feel like we're drowning in people's opinions. And just to quote the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, you know, people are entitled to their opinions, but they're not entitled to their own facts. And, uh, you know, so, and we're, we're getting fewer and fewer facts, and facts are becoming, rather than stubborn things, they're becoming relative things, and people have their own facts. And there's this great line that uh, Ron Suskind got out of an anonymous source in the Bush White House where he, sa he said he was sounding very disparaging about people like me and Ron and in the old mainstream, old media. So you're in the reality-based community. <laughs> <laughs> you know. You wanted to jump so, in? Yeah. Go. Um, I, I, I agree with, with, with everything that John just said. What I thought might be helpful is to look at that same dynamic from the perspective of the campaign as, uh, as opposed to from the perspective of the media. Um, in my world, in my world, there are three kinds of people. There are saints, there are sinners, and there are salvageables. And uh, I'll take a moment to define my terms. A saint, a saint, saints, sinners, and salvageables 
a saint, a saint is somebody who agrees with me. <laughs> no matter what, under any circumstances. And politically speaking, at least, roughly 40% of the electorate here in California and nationally are saints. They're going to vote for my party's candidates unless we try really, really hard to get them not to. Consequently, 40% of the voters, California and nationally, in my eyes, are, are sinners. Otherwise, good people. My father, who I told you about, is a sinner. My younger brother, the otherwise bright young man who worked seven years in the Clinton-Gore administration, he's a sinner. My aunts, my uncles, my 89-year-old grandmother. What happened to you, the idea. <laughs> There's a pattern here. Yeah. But they're wonderful people, but I'm not, I would never, no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much time I spent or oxygen I wasted, I would never, ever, ever be able to convince any of them to vote for a candidate of my choosing. And of course, it's all subjective because in my dad's eyes, me and my friends are the sinners and he and his friends are the saints, and you can you know, draw your own conclusions from that. Um, 20% of the electorate, therefore, are salvageables. And the difference between getting 40% of the vote and getting 51% of the vote and getting elected is attracting the majority of those salvageables, those swing voters, those soccer moms and those NASCAR dads. Now, there's two ways to win an election. Number one is the persuasion model, the idea that I figure out a way to get the majority of those salvageables to vote for my candidate. The other model, is rather than the persuasion model, is the motivational model. The idea being that rather than trying to persuade undecided voters to vote for my candidate, I assume that they're not that interested. Most of them probably aren't going to vote anyway. Instead, do everything I can to motivate and inspire my saints to turn out in as great numbers as possible. John, for the purposes of this discussion and this discussion only, do you mind being a Republican saint? Let's just be for a second. John's a Republican well, is, saint. Isn't that a contradiction in terms? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, this is what I get at Thanksgiving every year. People aren't facing me at all. Um, John's, a, John's a saint, and uh, my friend David here is uh, 15, 15 years safely removed from Washington, is a, is a salvageable. If I want to convince Dave Demarest, the salvageable voter, to support my candidate, I have to convince him to do two things. Number one, I have to convince him to vote. And number two, I have to convince him to vote for me or for my candidate. Those are two separate actions. And if I only do one of them, if I only get him to vote but can't close the deal, then not only have I wasted my time, I've gained my opponent to vote. With saintly Jonathan Alter here, don't wince like that, it's, it's almost over. <laughs> With saintly Jonathan Alter, I only have to convince him of one thing. I only have to convince him to vote. Because I know if he does vote, he's going to vote for me. And what we've seen in both parties over the last decade, largely because of the kind of dynamics that John has been talking about, is it's become not only much more cost efficient, to motivate saints rather than persuading salvageables. It's become much, much more convenient given the various forms of media that we're talking about. It used to be that if I didn't like what the San Francisco Chronicle was writing, I didn't have much choice. It was like complaining about, about the referees or the umpires. It was just there. Now I can go to the blogs. I can go to the talk shows. I can go to the email trees. And I can communicate with my supporters, with my saints, ignoring the Chronicle or the LA Times or the Washington Post. Now, there's a point at which this breaks down, and I think we've seen that with the Bush administration over the last 12 to 18 months, where you demand so much more and more and more of your saints that you begin to drive them off into the other direction. But I think a trend that we have seen in both parties over the last decade, largely because of this technology and these dynamics, from Al Gore to Howard Dean, certainly through the Bush and the Rove campaigns of 2000 and 2004, 
is a premium on motivating your most loyal supporters uh, at uh, the exclusion of talking to the vast middle of American politics. Uh, and uh, it helps you get elected. I'm sorry, John, I'm almost yeah, done you saying to you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it, it's, it's more cost efficient, and the technology certainly exists to make it easier in terms of getting elected. The danger is once you're there, how do you govern? How do you talk to the other side when you've been ignoring them for an entire campaign? How do you convince salvageables to support you on the issue of your choice when you didn't spend time building a base of support during the election? What if, you're, you what if you're not just ignoring them, but you're demonizing Even them? worse. You can't come to them the day after and say, hey, you know what? I was just kidding. Let's work together to reform Social Security. Now we're all friends again. It doesn't work that way. No, I, I, actually, I mean, I, I think you're right. You're half right. Um, I, but I feel like Karl Rove did that. I don't believe that uh, Bill Clinton, who you know, believed in the politics of triangulation and was not playing to a traditional Democratic Party base, he didn't do it, Al Gore didn't do it. It's done by Democratic primary candidates sometimes because they know that the primary voters are more, uh, are more liberal, so they, you know, they play to the base a little bit in primaries. But in general elections and in governing, this has been Karl Rove's unique and evil contribution to American politics. And it is evil because it makes it very, very, and I use that word intentionally, because what, the reason it's evil is because it says that he, his president is only president of some of the people, not all of the people. And, I would, and, I and would, that is a profoundly, un, the base strategy, as it was called, that Rove pioneered and for several years implemented brilliantly, was very successful politically in getting his, his man reelected, uh, but it was profoundly destructive to this country, where we had the most, the closest election in American history, unless you count 1876, maybe. And instead of taking the message from the people, which was that we needed to govern from the center, work together, we had some big problems, especially after September 11, to then say, no, I'm going to implement this base strategy where I only govern for the 40% that you talked about, you know, maybe 51% with, you know, just over the edge with the persuadables and the hell with everybody else is really uh, destructive. And that was not done by Democrats. Just so this even-steven thing, I don't I, buy. I, I agree. Uh, I, I halfway agree with you. I agree with you that it is a very, very damaging thing to our democracy. But I would argue strongly, and I was not invited here as a partisan, nor do I intend to perform as one. I, um, it is evil, but it is bipartisan. And the vitriol that comes from the left, from the daily causes and the moveon.orgs is just as angry and just as nasty as what comes, is what comes from the I far agree, right. I, and I don't think... I agree with that, Dan, but the d daily cost is not reflected in, you know, President Clinton, say, to use the most recent Democratic president, was not reflecting daily costs. President Bush was reflecting Rush Limbaugh. So, you know, you, you, yes, you're going to have extremes in American politics. You always have had them and you always will have them. It's whether the, the president is a big enough man or woman to govern for all the people and to bridge those gaps and bring people together and build consensus. Uh, I, and that's the only way you can succeed I, and solve problems. I, I, agree, I, agree with you uh, about, I agree with you about Clinton and I will note just for a moment the speed with which the Democratic Party raced back to the left after he left the Oval Office. But I would, but I would say this to, to, to stick to my point. How? The only difference between the Karl Rove approach yeah. and the Howard Dean approach is not one of vitriol or anger, rather it was one of effectiveness. 
but both sides do it. And in order to address this problem, I think it's important to recognize that the leaders and the operatives and the candidates of both parties spend way too much time fanning the flames of their almost loyal supporters and not enough time looking for that yeah. common ground. You're right that it's damaging. I think it's, uh, I, 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 I think it's dangerous to attribute it all to one side of the aisle or the other. Let's yeah. talk about whether this new media environment contributes to that. Let's talk about uh, the politics of destruction, um, how negative blogs, how uh, anonymous postings, those kinds of issues uh, are, a, uh, are to the detriment of civil discourse. It doesn't bother me, actually. I mean, I, you know, uh, when I wrote the book about Franklin Roosevelt and the kinds of things that were said... Uh, by his opponents, the kinds of things that were said in the election of 1800, where you had, you know, Jefferson was running, and in real time, during the campaign, you had uh, candidate Jefferson fathered a, 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 a child with a slave. You know, this was going on then. They called them pamphlets instead of blogs, uh, <laughs> but Tom Paine was the first blogger, you know, so this is, this is not a new thing in American politics. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's a contact sport. The question is what you do when you get there. And th this is where I think we're, in some ways we're talking past each other. I agree that you know, Democrats can be very rough in the campaigns. It's what you do when you get there, when you've been elected, and, and how you choose to view your obligations uh, to, to the country. Um, so I really, I don't worry too much about that. I, I actually think that we're gonna see a relatively clean campaign this time from the candidates. People always say it just gets dirtier and dirtier every year. I think you're gonna see it get cleaner this year because the blogs and the uh, user-generated content, the YouTube type stuff, they can carry a lot of the load of the really sharp elbowed attacks. You've now got the 527s, the independent committees, which have been revalidated by this recent Supreme Court decision. So you're going to see independent expenditures, really rough, nasty stuff. But the candidates themselves so are going to be able to stay. Are going to be able to stay up above the 527s? No, but it used to be that if you ha if you wanted to run a negative ad, you know, you kind of had your fingerprints on it to a certain extent. I mean. It, when they ran, when you guys ran the ad of Dukakis in the tank, you know, you had to run that ad. Now, the provenance of Willie Horton, that was sort of the beginning of where, you know, maybe you could do it without your fingerprints on it, and I think that was the first really important That was the first independent first uh, important commercial independent that one. highlighted uh, uh, this issue. Now, I guess you could say that the public doesn't distinguish between who paid for it, you know, and they just see a lot of mud flying. Um, and people who are, are turned off by that, um, I think, need to just have a little bit more historical perspective. Uh, there are votes in staying clean. And because the disgust with this kind of politics is so uh, high that um, it, it, it costs you if you go after somebody. So one of the things that goes on in these primaries is it, when there's a front runner, Nobody wants to be the candidate who takes out the front runner because if you take out the front runner, you can't win yourself. Somebody else comes up. So right now you've got like Obama and and Edwards going. Well, who's going to try to take out Hillary? Not me. They hope because if they can avoid doing it, then maybe they can benefit. Because you always pay a price by going negative. John, uh, if I may, yeah. uh, John's right. The the messaging is the same. I mean, was it? 
Yeah, Grover Cleveland, who is accused of having the illegitimate child, ma, ma, where's my pa, off to the White House, ha, ha, ha. The difference is communicating that via pamphlet and communicating that via blog is speed. So the message is the same, but the speed with which that message disseminates uh, is much more extreme. You've heard the old expression, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth puts its shoes on. Well, in the internet age, that is probably an understatement. Um, but I, guess I, I make a couple of quick points. Number one, what this does is it puts more responsibility on the news consumer. It puts more responsibility on the voter to differentiate, to distinguish between what they believe to be credible and non-credible information. And the iPodization I was talking about earlier works against that. Because you only go to your own favorite website with somebody who agrees with you and tells you how smart you are seven days a week. You're not going to get a very broad perspective of the charge being made against your candidate or the opponent. Rather, it becomes the responsibility of the news audience to seek out a variety of sources across the ideological lines to decide for themselves whether the charge is critical or not. But to me, and again, John's right, the negative campaigning's always been there and personal attacks will always be part of the process, like it or not. To me, the most important part of that exchange, though, is not the insult, it's not the criticism, it's not the attack, it's the response. Right. How does the man or the woman respond to criticism? How do they respond or not respond to an attack? How do they take a punch? And what you learn about that individual, that man or woman on the campaign trail, how they handle adversity, how they handle unexpected circumstances, tells you a great deal about how they might conduct themselves once elected to to office. Um, Former Senator George Allen is a former senator now, not just because of gaffes, he made, some of which we may watch later, um, but because of the way he responded to them. Senator Obama and former Governor Romney are the respective front runners uh, in at least some of the early primary states in their parties, even having had pretty nasty accusations leveled against them because of the way they conducted themselves. But isn't the question really whether, first of all, negative campaigning is used because negative campaigning works. Second, negative campaigning uh, degrades uh, the political process in terms of the tenor of the debate so that uh, it may be true that how someone responds to a negative attack will say something uh, positive to the voters about the character of that individual. But don't you think that the, the level of negativism in the political uh, context today is degrading the entire process? The level of negativism and the number of sources from which that negativism can spring, back to Jonathan's point. Um, You've you've been in a bunch of presidential campaigns. You've been in a uh, bunch of gubernatorial campaigns. Um, We've got 20-some presidential hopefuls today. When we talk about how does the news consumer sift through all of that cacophony of information, how, how is it... Is it reasonable to think that the, uh, that the news consumer can actually do that, given this kind of incredible media environment that we've got now? The news consumer can do it if they choose to, if he or she chooses to, but more importantly, the news consumer has the ability to choose what information they want, rather than letting Walter Cronkite right. or David Brinkley And that's huge. Brinkley you don't have to watch them. nowadays. If you watch, uh, uh, if you feel like there's too much air pollution and too much negativity, you know, go to your TiVo. Stop watching dopey commercial television and you won't see all those 
those ads. And if you want to see the latest attack, which I think especially a lot of younger people do want to see because there's, there's humor in it a lot of the time and, and it's just, it can be exciting to see what the latest attacks are, you can go on the internet and see them. Uh, and, and, you know, and so th I do think in some ways the campaigns are only going to be as negative as an individual allows them to be in his or her own life. And that, that arguably uh, is a step forward, except for the people who, um, you know, are too lazy to uh, reach for the ch channel changer when the negative ad comes on TV. But this, this uh, comes back to the empowerment also. Not only can you turn off the negativity or the positivity, if you so choose, but if you feel like the mainstream news media is telling you too much about uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and not enough about the rest of the field, well, you can learn as much as you want to about Dennis Kucinich and Mike Gravel in a way that you couldn't possibly have done yeah. four years ago, Ron eight years, Paul years ago. Ron Paul the big star one of, uh, in one of my, uh, blogs. One of my students <laughs> starts tomorrow as a field organizer for the Bill, Bill Richardson for President campaign. Now, I'm a great admirer of the work that Governor Richardson has done in New Mexico, but he has about as much chance of becoming president next year as I do. But Daniel was able to go to his website. He was able to learn more about the candidate. He was able to get in touch with other people who were supporting Richardson. And after volunteering for Richardson from Los Angeles, California, was able to establish enough of a communication with the campaign that he was able to get involved with a base of information and an array of contacts that simply would not have been possible otherwise. A lot of people can say, yeah, it's too much, forget it, I'm gonna watch Home Shopping Network. But for those voters who want to participate, this empowerment, to me, this is it's where its real value kicks in. Yeah, for instance, like people used to always complain, and you know, in, in when I covered campaigns in the 80s, uh, 90s, why don't you report more on the issues? And I would always, every cycle, I was the issues man at Newsweek. I would do these huge takeouts where they stood on every issue, and because otherwise, my feeling was the campaign campaigns weren't talking that much about the issues the media wasn't talking that much about the issues how were people supposed to know where you know dukakis and bush stood on various issues if we didn't put it in newsweek but now if you want to know you can go to their website and you can read their position papers to your heart's content and and it's not really up to us as much to to force feed it to people uh, what we need to do is bring context and perspective to it that you're not going to get from from the candidates own websites because they're obviously not going to you know tell you how the guy flip-flopped on that issue or uh, you know why that issue is so important for telling you what kind of a president he might make uh, and so you know our job is a little bit uh, people are always saying well why don't you just give me the facts give me the facts don't give me your uh, take on the facts and, you know, our answer to that is, well, you know, we're, A, we're not a wire service, and B, the Internet is nothing but information, raw information. Um, and, and so what we do and what I think other news organizations do is to, to dig up stuff that you can't get elsewhere, fresh information, and also to provide um, some perspective, and I guess what bothers me right now about a lot of the response I get to the MSM, the mainstream media, is this sense that um, we're not providing any added value. And it reminds me of um, a comment by my friend Michael Kinsley, who's a wonderful columnist and, and uh, the founder of Slate magazine, online magazine. And he said, you know, if he wants to, when he goes into a restaurant, he doesn't want the food cooked by 
the people at the next table. He wants it cooked by a chef, you know, who's had some training in pulling together the ingredients and and you know, so when I when I hear from people, you know, oh, and I get a tremendous amount of hate mail, I have to say. Um, you know, you guys, you you know, I can get much more from the internet than we could possibly get from you and go uh, jump in the lake, blah, 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 blah. And then they say, and uh, several times this has happened, and by the way, you know, you never report blah, 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 blah. And I write them back and say, well, actually, you know, that story that you referred to was actually broken by Newsweek in 2002. <laughs> you know, <We're, laughs> and, and it's all going into that Cuisinart in people's minds. They're not quite sure where they heard it or where they read it. All they know is that the old mainstream media <laughs> doesn't get it done. You know, they don't know where they got it, but where they actually got it was from the New York Times or Newsweek or CBS or you know, if, if you tra trace it all the way back. Uh, sometimes from a foreign newspaper. Um. Before we go to questions, I want to touch on one other thing and have you both uh, briefly give me your take on it. Uh, you you uh, uh, talked a little bit about this in your opening comment, and it's uh, every policymaker's nightmare, every politician's nightmare, is when they are called upon to defend themselves against a charge that they don't know the answer to that uh, they have to make a decision before they have the information upon which to base a sensible decision, yet the political pressures are there because of the instantaneous nature of the media today demanding a response. How, how big a problem is this going forward? Um, it's a problem for undisciplined politicians. Um, it is an added challenge. It's one thing if I'm holding a news conference in 1988, and Jonathan Alter and four other print reporters are covering that news conference. I can say, hey guys, give me until four o'clock today, and I'll be back to you with answers. But now, if there's someone sitting next to Jonathan with a cell phone video camera, um, yes, the pressure is on me. But that pressure's always been there from television, radio. It's very difficult for any candidate, any elected official, to look out at a bank of television cameras, to look into a, a field of microphones, and say, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going, what I'm going to do is I'm going to gather all the necessary information, I'm going to review it, and then I'm going to come back to this place at this time tomorrow and give you an informed, considered answer. I think you can do that. I was just going to respond, say, people like that. When it, you do well, that. I was just going to say, it take, but it takes a disciplined candidate and a disciplined politician. Right. Certainly the pressures you've described are much greater than with radio microphones and television cameras, right. but it's the same dynamic to be able to say, I know you want an answer right now, but even more than the voters deserve a fast answer, they deserve a correct answer. So I'm going to gather all the information. I will meet you back here at this precise, mo precise moment in this precise space, same bad time, same bad channel tomorrow. And I will answer your questions on I'll this. I'll tell you what I think is really sad about this. I, I, I don't like it as a the, the YouTubing of everything. Uh, I, I have problems with because I think some downtime is good for candidates. And, and people shouldn't be accountable for everything they say all the time. Um, Look at, uh, let's look at the uh, uh, John McCain uh, 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 bomb, 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 okay. Iran. Uh, uh, Where is it? Uh, let's Go see. Yeah. Uh, oh, great. 
Uh, well, never mind. <laughs> uh, John, never you want mind. to just perform? Jonathan <laughs> yeah. will just perform yeah, it for us. <laughs> you know, one day at an event, it, not too long ago, he, he, to the tune of Barbara Ann, you know, he goes, bomb, 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 Moran, bomb, 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 Moran. And, you know, people, oh, he shouldn't be joking about that. That's awful. You know, that's terrible that he would be okay, saying that. And he had to apologize and everything. And that was what I liked about John McCain in 2000. You know, is that he, we'd travel around with him and he had this kind of carefree attitude. And yeah, maybe sometimes it was a dumb joke or maybe it was an inappropriate joke, you know, but because there wasn't a camera on him all the time, uh, we got to know him more as a human being. I think it's hurt McCain a lot this time that he can't let the impish part of him out and he has to be so programmed and on guard all the time. And what it means is that the press and then thereby the public gets to know these people less well as human beings. It makes the campaign more boring. They're always, you know, on message and sure that there's a camera on them at all times. So they never let their hair down. And we don't have as many insights to them as human beings. I think that's a real loss uh, for the process. And I don't think the gain, which is the gotcha, you know, we got him. Uh, is is worth it, although I do think it's good that George Allen's not in the Senate anymore. Well, I, uh, but, um, putting the George uh, Allen aspect aside, I, I disagree with you a little bit on this one, John, because to me, just like it's not the attack, but rather the response, it's I not the know. video clip, it's the context. It's a different and I'll give you another McCain example from now. 2000, one that was not on video it's but in print, uh, and one that contrasted with then Governor Bush. In the early stages of the 2000 no. campaign, as many of you may remember, Governor Bush was doing an interview with a Boston television reporter who gave him sort of a pop quiz and asked yeah. him to name the leaders of four foreign countries. And Governor Bush accurately said that the name, the name of the leader of Taiwan was Lee. Other than that, he didn't do so well Including on, on the, the quiz. Including the president, the prime minister of Pakistan. <laughs> yeah. He didn't know okay. who that was. So uh, huge stories everywhere. George Bush doesn't know what he's talking about. He shouldn't be president on and on. About a week later, we're on the bus with McCain in New Hampshire. Um, actually, I take that back, we were in Vermont. We got lost that day, such is the problem with traveling by bus. And the senator uh, was talking, he was trying to think of the name of the woman who had taken on a position uh, overseeing human rights for the United Nations. And he couldn't think of Mary Robinson's name. He described her position as the leader of Ireland. He talked about her biography at some extent. He couldn't think of her name. And the next day, a little story ran on page 827 of the New York Times saying that John McCain couldn't think of the name of, the, uh, of, this, uh, of this individual. And the Bush people went crazy on us. So they said, aha, this is the bias of the mainstream news media. <laughs> right, right. Because George Bush didn't know three people's names and it was on the news for a week. John McCain didn't know this woman's name and it was on page A27. And the difference wasn't the screw up, the difference was context. The difference was that John McCain had been sitting in the back of the bus with the New York Times and with Jonathan Alter and 25 other reporters for hour after hour after hour talking at great length about the history of the Irish Republic, about its relationship with Great Britain, about Mary Robinson and her political biography and how she came to the United Nations and what the United Nations was doing on the very important subject of human rights. So the fact that he forgot a name was not nearly as important because context surrounded it. Yeah, but that's candidates because it wasn't okay. on TV. No, that that was the main thing. Nobody a had a camera on him. A candidate who says Today they would, and that's the problem. Matter. I think they should actually try to, they'll never succeed in this, but you know, that, that campaign was the best for a reporter that I've covered, you know, since, since uh, I go back to 1980. And, and 
it's because we, there was so much opportunity to get to know the candidate and to talk to him endlessly on that bus, and he's not doing it this time. Wait, but well, if, let's, if he said, let's, let's, let's ban candidate, let's ban cameras, I mean, this, is, this will never happen, but I really do think that they should say, let's ban, at least some of the time, let's ban cameras from some of these, uh, you know, traveling on the bus or whatever. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt, I've got a, a chapter in my book on his press conferences, and before Roosevelt, he had to submit all questions in writing. Uh, and Roosevelt said, you know, I'm going to have this innovation, uh, I'm going to have two press conferences a week. Can you imagine a president having two press conferences a week? But no radio, no cameras. And, and he was able to you know, get away with it. Now, now, obviously, today you couldn't do that with press conferences. But I do think that the ubiquity of uh, you know, everybody's cell phone, taking the picture all the time, recording everything, is a little bit out of hand. I, I worry about professors who, you know, everything they say in class is now on the record and can be sent all over the world by some student who thinks they're biased or something. Uh, that's not a good thing. Um, it, it, when Joe McCarthy started going after uh, professors in, uh, in the early 1950s, a lot of universities put their lectures off the record because they, for reasons of academic freedom, to protect people. The, the technology now is intruding in ways that I hope there's some kind of backlash against it that we can have a little privacy. So if I say something stupid tonight, I'm not going to be having to dig myself out for the next three weeks from you know 5,000 emails saying oh, you I'm a will. clown. <laughs> it, it would be nice if we could return to a world where it was just us. <laughs> Let's open it up. About apologizing to the bloggers then while you have a chance. <laughs> That's right, Let's open it up to some questions from the audience. Uh, I think. Uh, uh, we have micro microphones set up. Uh, you can just line up behind the microphones. And uh, we do try to emphasize that they're questions and not uh, speeches. Uh, so uh, yes, sir. OK, I, I, won't, I won't give the speech. Uh, my question was, how, um, how has Obama done it on the fundraising so much more successfully than anybody anticipated? I mean, you knew we did anticipate he would get a lot of money, and he started out so well. But this last quarter, it's a shocker. What is it about his internet network or how it's set up or who's running it? Could you put some enlightenment on that for us? Well, th this, is, this is the distinction between the medium and the message. The reason Barack Obama has excited so many people online is the reason he excited so many people during the Democratic National Convention in 2004. It's because he is a compelling, exciting, interesting, provocative, potentially transformative person. You could take Barack Obama's campaign web apparatus and give it to Chris Dodd, and he would still be Chris Dodd. And he would not be raising any more money online than he is right now. Now, there are things that the campaign has done. The Obama and the Edwards campaign in particular have been very, very effective at that. And we can dig to that level in a moment if you like. But I think it's worth backing up and acknowledging that the reason that Obama has become this phenomenon is not because of the technology. Rather, it's about the message that's moving through it. The technology has accelerated it. But without, uh, 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 but, but if all he had was the technology, he'd be Chris Dodd. But the great thing is, the great thing that the tech, I agree with you completely, but the great thing that the technology does, and that is so positive, and I think that years from now, we'll look back on this as being the signature development of this period in our politics, is that, you know, when people got really excited about, you know, Gene McCarthy, say, in 1968, you know, when, when his anti-war message was really resonating, uh, there was, you know, he could raise some money, 
through direct mail and get some money from some wealthy individuals who liked his message. Uh, but there was no real mechanism for him to, to get these kinds of, of contributions and, and to communicate with his people and then go back to them over and over again. And so what this has the potential to do, what the internet really can do is to, and I don't think I'm being Pollyannish about this, to break the stranglehold of big money on our politics if you've got the right message. And I think it's also a misconception that the new technologies are all about young people. That right. the evidence is starting to come through that more and more uh, people over 30 are engaged uh, through all of these technologies um, and that to think of these technologies as a young person's thing only is a mistake. But these but politicians, they go and they kiss up to rich people all day, every day. This is what their lives have become. They complain about it when you know them. It's the worst part of the job. And this has the potential to not eliminate that entirely. Obama still has to go to a lot of, you know, uh, go to Mill Valley or wherever all the time. And, and But, <laughs> you know, he, he's, he has the potential to do less of that now. Uh, because 80% uh, of his contributors gave less than $100, and they can give as much as 2300 So he can go back to these quarter of a million people over and over but again. And, it, and, and it, 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 you know, everybody assumed that he was just going to get blown out of the water by Hillary Clinton's money machine, and it, it just hasn't turned out that way. It's the most interesting development of the campaign so and, far. And, and, and to the gentleman's point, the one thing that the Obama and I would say the Edwards campaign, the two are probably doing better than any others on either side, is they've identified not just the young voter, but the small donor. We talked about how the internet can have an impact as it relates to speed. We talked about its empowerment potential. What that also means is convenience. In 1984, my father watched Gary Hart give a speech uh, after he won the New Hampshire primary. The next day, he got up, my dad, and he read about it in the newspaper. The day after that, well, actually a few days after that, about a week after that, he got a, a piece of mail from the Hart campaign asking for money. A couple days after that, my dad found his checkbook. A day after that, he wrote the check. A week after that, he found a stamp. <laughs> <laughs> Three days after that, it got to the Hart campaign. Four days after that, the check had cleared, and Gary Hart's presidential campaign could spend that money just as he was announcing his withdrawal from the That's 1984 a great point. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. Great point. And just yeah. quickly, whoever wins the New Hampshire primary next year in the Democratic Party, you will be watching online, and with two, by pushing two buttons, you will have contributed to your favorite candidate's campaign, and they will have that money in less than a second. Right. Yes, sir. We can hear it, but I don't think it's on. Yeah. It doesn't sound on. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'd like to follow the money again, uh, the money line. It seems like the big story is not Obama and his policies or what he's saying, the content, but the big story is that he has raised so much money. And that brings me to campaign finance reform. Is there any hope of focusing campaign discussion on campaign finance reform and limiting the amount we spend on these elections. The Supreme Court is making it harder and harder, and I think it, unfortunately, 
you know, and I've been a big believer in it. It's fading uh, as an issue. Um, and the Democrats and the Republicans are not going for the matching money um, uh, the way they used to. Uh, they so-called busted the caps the last time Dean did so in 2004. And so I think it's really hard um, to keep the momentum for, for meaningful campaign finance reform, but you can work it at the other end in terms of, and Obama has some legislation that he, he, he's, uh, he got, actually got through, uh, you know, limiting gifts. It's, it's in Washington. It's not in these presidential campaigns where I worry about it that much. First of all, the candidate with the most money doesn't win a lot of the time. Uh, it, it's, it's a free media campaign. It's not what they call paid media campaign that is determined by ads. Um, so the money's important. You have to have anti-up money. But it, it, candidates don't get bought in presidential elections. But in congressional elections, Senate elections, gubernatorial elections, especially state legislative elections, they're often just bought and paid for by special interests. So the, the, the goal in my mind is to have some campaign finance reform, which is uh, always going to get eroded over time because money in politics is like water rushing downhill. It always finds its way somehow. And then to build popular movements that can use the internet to, as a counterweight to the money of special interests so that what we see in the Obama campaign can happen in, in Senate races in California. And we've seen a lot of this in California over the years. It's been a leader. Uh, you know, Hiram Johnson, Senator Hiram Johnson was talking about this kind of thing uh, 70 and 80 years ago, uh, to mobilize people to stand up to special interests. And the great thing about this Obama development is it suggests that maybe if a candidate has the right message and the right appeal, they can use uh, ordinary people to, uh, to do that. You know, the Democratic Party very recently, as recently as 10 years ago, maybe less, had fewer small donations than the Republicans. The Republican Party had a lot of people sending in $25. The Democrats had almost none. It was a party of fat cats. And that has changed, and that's a very, very good thing. The, the terrific uh, thing about the gentleman's question is I think it gets back to the central point we've been discussing tonight. If you don't want to read about Barack Obama's fundraising, the answer is to go to Google and type in Obama and global warming, or Obama and poverty or Obama in Iraq, and you can read about Senator Obama's policy agenda to your heart's content without having any idea whether he's raised more money than Hillary Clinton or less than Dennis Kucinich. But uh, I guess I just make two quick points as it relates to campaign finance reform as an issue. Number one, as you know, my former employer talked a great deal about it, about that issue in the 1999 and 2000 cycle. And what I learned very quickly is that most of the people to whom he was talking, most of the people to whom we were communicating did not know the difference between soft money and fabric softener. They were not interested in the details of his proposals. But what they did know is that there was something profoundly wrong about the system, and they relished a candidate who was willing to talk about it. And earlier this year, when my former colleagues laid out a series of three policy speeches for the senator to give before his official campaign announcement, when I saw that one speech was on Iraq, and one speech was on energy, and one speech was on the economy, and none of the speeches were on campaign finance reform, that was the day I decided to become an undecided voter. Um, finally, just my own personal perspective, there are a million campaign finance reforms that can, can be implemented, all of which can make the process better. I'll suggest just one for you to consider tonight. 
that all donations of any size, and there should be no limit on the size of a donation, a dollar, a million dollars, a billion dollars, give whatever you want, every contribution given to any candidate for any office and every party should be anonymous. And you've solved the problem. Next. <laughs> well, okay. Yes, sir. Uh, given everything we've talked about tonight, or you guys have talked about tonight, about uh, politically, you know, um, polarized micromedia and the marginalization of uh, night, you know, nightly news. Um, what is your take on the threat or non-threat of Ru uh, Rupert Murdoch's pursuit of the Wall Street Journal? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Remember, this is off the record. <laughs> I don't care. He'll never hear it. No, I don't care. I, I think he's a menace. I wish... I wish... Uh, I wish um, you know, Ron Burkle is like, talk about fat cats. He's, you know, the supermarket magnate uh, from Los Angeles who's Bill Clinton's buddy, and he's trying to put together a deal. And I, I wish him luck because I, I, I you know, I, I, I find it hard to imagine anybody worse than Murdoch. He's like, uh, he reminds me of the big bad wolf, you know, and, and uh, Little Red Riding Hood. Like, you know, he says, oh, I'm going to be. Come closer, little red riding. Come closer, you know. And um, he, uh, I was in uh, London uh, uh, three days ago, and I picked up the London Times, which was his paper. And it was amazing how bad the reporting was here on in in, in some air, in some papers on what he did to the London Times. They only quoted people who were still on the Murdoch payroll, saying. Oh, he hasn't done anything to London Times. It's a great, it's a tabloid now. This was one of the, you know, really good papers in the whole world, and he turned it into a, a, a tabloid. And, you know, I don't know what he'll do to the Wall Street Journal, but it won't be good. And to go back to something we were talking about earlier, um, the people who watch Fox News believe overwhelmingly that uh, Saddam Hussein was involved with 9-11. Um, and that's, you know, people who are generally, you know, well-educated, relatively speaking, um, but they got such a steady diet of propaganda from Fox News over such a long period of time that they believed in large numbers that black was white and white was black. And that's a dangerous thing. And I think it's, it's very bad for uh, American business um, and American business doesn't recognize this because they don't understand that transparency and aggressive reporting on their uh, failures is actually a good thing for them because uh, where societies get in trouble, whether it's governments, businesses, whatever, is when there isn't any real tough-minded reporting about what they do and then they can't make corrections. You know, it's the same argument, and so if you don't have aggressive business reporting, if you wrecks the Wall Street Journal, businesses will get fat and complacent and unproductive again. It's like the, the Republican Congress that, that abandoned oversight was the worst thing that happened to George W. Bush. He thought it was a good thing that he had a rubber stamp in Congress and they never criticized him, they never issued subpoenas, they never said where, where it wasn't working. If he had had a Democratic Congress or even an aggressive Republican Congress, the way uh, Roosevelt had a very aggressive Democratic Congress with Harry Truman doing oversight you know, during World War II, we wouldn't have been in the fix we're in in Iraq because they, he would have been forced to make mid-course corrections 
much earlier. So that sounds like it's unrelated to the Murdoch point, but it's all about accountability, transparency, and somebody out there holding your feet to the fire. And Rupert Murdoch will not do that for American business. I, I was going to take a question about Rupert Murdoch and turn it into an answer about the Philangelides for Governor Kennedy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but we can go on to the next question. Sorry. <laughs> I, it's, it's like a yes, bull and a flag, yes, a red cape. Uh, I just wanted to ask a follow-up question to, I think, uh, one of the ending points that you had at the end of the introductory comments, which was about the sort of 24-hour news cycle and the ubiquity of devices. And I think, Jonathan Adler, you were ending up saying, you know, we need to give the candidates a little bit more of a break, allow them to be a little bit more accessible. And being a little bit of a news junkie, I don't mind reading on the New York Times how they talk about what was said on the bus and the personality of candidates. But as an individual who doesn't have that face-to-face -face access, I do learn a lot when Hillary's cracking a joke at her husband's expense. And then, as you mentioned, how she responds to the little brouhaha that comes out about it. And it seems like, I remember, like, after Dole's failed campaign, and he went on The Letterman Show, and he was a completely different person than he was on the campaign trail, at least I felt, regardless of whether you think of his political beliefs or not. But he was just much more personal, much more open, not quite as serious. So I just feel like, as an individual voter, I get to understand the personalities of the candidates if I get to see more of the gaffes or more of the behind the scenes, because it is a fuller picture of who they are. And then they just have to respond more intelligently to the commentary in the press, but I wondered, I mean, from all of your perspectives, is that a good thing, is it it's, a bad thing? I, it's a good point. I, I, I think you're exactly right. I, I agree with you very, very strongly. Uh, there was a great article, just a terrific article in New York Magazine, not the New Yorker, but rather New York Magazine, um, right at the, beginning of, uh, at the beginning of June. And the author talked about the distance between the public and private candidate, and her theory is that the greater the distance between the public man or public woman and the private individual, the worse a candidate they are. I think one of the reasons my former boss has had so much problems over the last year is he's been trying to run as somebody much different than who he really is. Just like Bob Dole after the 1996 campaign all of a sudden became a lot easier to relate to, look at the difference between Al Gore circa 2000 and Al Gore 2007. There's a terrific book, there's an excellent book by Joe Klein, uh, the columnist for another magazine that I'm not allowed to mention here today. Um, and um, it's called Politics Lost. And the basic premise is how political consultants are, consultants are ruining American politics. And uh, his premise, uh, to some degree, is a correct one. And he, he gives two examples right at the beginning of his book. The first is from the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy was in Indianapolis, Indiana. No advisors, no polls, no focus groups, just him and a few notes scribbled, talking to a predominantly African-American inner-city audience about what had transpired earlier in the day. Many of his listeners had not heard the news yet when he delivered his speech. And what Klein suggests accurately is that Bobby Kennedy's speech was poetry. The second example that Joe Klein gives is a dinner he had with several of Al Gore's advisors shortly after the 2000 election. And he asked Gore's advisors, why didn't Al Gore talk about the environment? Why didn't Al Gore talk about global warming? Clearly this is an issue that means a lot to him. Why didn't he talk about it? And Gore's advisors with great amounts of pride said, oh, we didn't let him. We knew it could hurt him in the Rust Belt. We knew it would hurt him in Ohio. We knew it would hurt him in Pennsylvania. We knew it would hurt him in Michigan. We couldn't allow it. And I thought to myself, you know, for years and years now, and any number of people who've worked for Al Gore have told me what a wonderful, fun, funny person he is. I said, well, you obviously have a different definition of fun or funny than I do because that's just not the one I see. 
And then I read that and I thought to myself, no wonder he seemed so uncomfortable yeah. with himself. He had an issue that he believed and still believes is the most important facing humankind and he wasn't allowed to talk about it in the campaign. And back to your point, I've learned a lesson from you, John, to take questions and take them off into the stratosphere. Back to, back, back, back to your very important question, is to me, seeing the candidate mess up on the campaign bus is fine. Because maybe not this year, but four years from now or eight years from now, candidates who no longer think about online campaigning but just think about campaigning, will realize that those foibles, those mistakes, those gaffes are a way the candidates can get to know them much better than the prefabricated videos that they post to get an insight into the candidate's humanity on the campaign website. Yeah, but so well, picking, far, up, picking up on that though, yeah. the candidates that do act themselves and they do make a misstep, what happens then? What happens to those candidates uh, when the, uh, the, Google, the, the uh, blogs, the uh, the, even the mainstream media uh, takes them apart. Yeah. Those candidates then retreat and they stop wanting to be authentic. Right. And then they leave it to their right. campaign professionals to produce videos that look authentic. That, that's the pro yeah, I think you put your finger on the problem is that, you know, yes, it's great to see like, uh, you know, C-SPAN campaign trail where you, you see them shaking hands and you feel like you're there like a reporter and that's all good. I'm not trying to get rid of that. Um, but if you, if you have everything on camera, they, then they get gun shy and they keep the press out whenever they can because so much of it is otherwise the penalty on, is on big. the air. And, and then that ends up hurting them in the long run, but they do the cautious thing. The way gaffes hurt is when they play into something that Absolutely. the press and the public already believes. I heard somebody mention that the Dean scream. I mean, uh, that was an example of something. First of all, his campaign was already over by the time he did that, so it, it didn't really hurt him at all. It was just the kind of coup de grace. He was basically done. Political he, euthanasia. He was already, he had lost, when he was doing that, he had already lost the Iowa caucuses when he was expected for months to win them and be the nominee, and it was clear, and, and all of us knew he was finished that night before the, the scream. Um, but what the scream did is it, it, it wasn't really a scream, it was a typical like hyped media event. It played into people's sense that he was a little bit out of control and you know, not, not really, and had been making a lot of other gaffes. And gaffes only resonate when they are used symbolically as shorthand to express something that the press has not been able to get across otherwise. So You're then they play it right. over in, and over again. In our, uh, in 1992, the story ran that George Bush Sr. did not know what a supermarket scanner was. Right. And uh, regardless of whether that was true or not, uh, it was played on the front page of the New York Times in a story by Andy Rosenthal yeah. that asserted that at a trade show, George Bush was mystified by this new technology. It wasn't that it was true or not, as I say, but it did play to a perception right. among the American public that George Bush was out of touch. Right. Drawing, if it had been Clinton, drawing, nobody wait, would have noticed it would have been a blip. But drawing, but drawing a distinction between yeah. C-SPAN on one side and cell phone video on the other, to me, I think ignores the fact that we are just at a certain point in time. In 1968, Richard Nixon, candidate Richard Nixon, hired a former producer for the Mike Douglas Show to produce his campaign events. 
and they put together what we now call town hall meetings, where average voters got to ask Richard Nixon uh, questions about what he would do if he were elected president. And it made him look like a regular guy. Before 1968, when candidates appeared on camera... That was Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes, <laughs> now the head of Fox News. Yeah. Um, and I know we'll get back to that in a minute, won't we, John? <laughs> <laughs> um, but prior to that moment, when a candidate appeared on television, he stood behind a podium or he sat at a desk with a flag behind him and a pitcher of water next to him. And the idea of a candidate being filmed as he or she casually worked their way through voters on C-SPAN was unfathomable in that era. And I'd suggest to you that even if it's unfathomable to you and me now, that a cell phone video can provide legitimate coverage, that four years from now or eight years from now, candidates will know not to be any more afraid of that than John Edwards and Hillary Clinton and Mitt Romney are of C-SPAN cameras. Well, what's interesting to me this year is watching Hillary Clinton, who's you know, not a natural uh, like her <laughs> husband, try to soften her image with the internet, you know, using uh, uh, this contest to pick her theme song, the Soprano spoof, <coughs> these kinds of things. And so that's the merging of, of the consultant-dominated process with the... Uh, new media and it's, it's almost like you know they call uh, when when a, a, a grassroots campaign is ginned up by lobbyists they call it astroturfing you know and I'm not sure what they'll call this but it's sort of a prepackaged uh, web spontaneity and and somebody here can maybe come up with a a name for what this is. It's working for her, I think. She does seem kind of softer and more accessible. Seems like she's got a sense of humor. I think it's helping her. Um, but it's all, you know, the product of Mandy Grunwald and her consultants who are trying to, desperately looking for ways to, to soften her edges. And right now right. it's a battle between consultants and spontaneity. I would argue it's a last gasp. That not only four years from now, but probably one year from now as we're watching the general election candidates online, videos like the Clinton video, like Mitt Romney you know, telling jokes with his wife, voters are going to dismiss those out of hand because they know they're prefabricated. And the candidate who exhibits the genuine moments of spontaneity that the last questioner asked about an hour or two ago, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be the candidate. Uh, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think it's, it's like, it, it just depends on whether it's funny and well done. Like Obama's thing uh, when the Chicago Bears were in the playoffs and he, you know, I don't know if any of you saw that. We don't have it as a clip, probably wouldn't matter if we did, uh, <laughs> but, you know, he, he, you know, he sounds like, I have a very important announcement to make, and then, you know, you think he's going to announce for president, and he's got this, he puts on this Bears cap, and he goes, dun, 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 go Bears, and, you know, it, it was totally prepackaged and cooked up, but because it was funny, it sort of worked, so I think one of the great things that's happening is, and this is something very smart that Hillary's doing, she's having a contest for user-generated videos, pro-Hillary videos, tapping into the creativity of her supporters. And, and I, I think the real battle with consultants, and I, I, uh, I noticed this in interviewing uh, the, the top consultant to one of the candidates recently, you know, and he was talking about you know, his vision for the kinds of ads they're gonna do, and I, say, I said to him, well, maybe your vision isn't really gonna matter that the ads this year that will dominate will be ones that regular people cook up and that get a lot of hits on YouTube and you guys will all be, if not out of business, at least relegated to a lesser and more appropriate place in the cosmos. I think we, we forced the questioners uh, into sitting yeah, positions. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, we're almost out of time, but you've been waiting patiently. Sorry. Well, 
I hate to send this thing into overtime, but you've answered the first half of my question. In the 2004 it was campaign, <laughs> in the 2004 campaign, we 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 know that Howard Dean got sent to oblivion by the one speech that he made. Now, we got about another six, seven months before the primaries. How does that prevent, or uh, or how do we prevent a candidate of either party doing the same thing with the iPods and the iPhones and so on? Would that mitigate a gaffe like that on television or what? Well, first of all, I, I don't think I made myself clear. That scream in that speech had absolutely nothing, I mean nothing, to do with the collapse of Howard Dean. Oh, he was finished as a presidential candidate okay. earlier in the day. He had lost the Iowa caucuses after he was expected by everybody to win them. And he not only lost, he lost badly. He finished a distant fourth. I think so the he, his presidential campaign was over. And, and, but what happens sometimes is that something comes to symbolize something, and that came to symbolize the end of his campaign, even though it actually didn't contribute to it uh, in, 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 in real time. But you're absolutely right that something else like that could this year have, have the potential to scramble everything, which is why I am uh, loath to say who's going to win. I mean, people ask me all the time, who's going to win? It's way too early, as, as you say. There's too many... Un much too much time uh, between too the many variables and the election. And too many different things that can happen that are uncontrollable and that could spin the process. Let, let me talk about this quickly from a strategist yeah. standpoint. You can't avoid gaffes. You can't afford bad news. You can't avoid scandals. What Bill Clinton learned, what Bill Clinton knew, and what Gavin Newsom learned and what Antonio Vitaragosa, the mayor of Los Angeles, has not yet figured out, <laughs> is that you can't make those things go away, you can't make them disappear, you surround them. You take that embarrassing moment, whatever it is, and you make it as small of a piece of the overall amount of information about your, available about your candidate as possible. If the only thing the voters know about my candidate is that he said something dumb in the back of the campaign bus, then he deserves to lose. But if he's the kind of candidate, I'm the kind of advisor who can say, okay, we're not gonna spend the rest of the campaign talking about that gaffe, we're going to make sure voters know what he wants to do about Iraq, know what he wants to do about economic growth, knows what he wants to do about energy independence. That gaffe becomes a much smaller piece of information available. That's how you keep, not the Dean screen for the reasons mm -hmm. John mentioned, but that's how you keep the gaffes from taking it's, over. It's a campaign. really hard problem. What, do you, what does Edwards do about the $400 haircut? This is, you know, this is something that, I mean, he's tried to joke about it. He, it, it's sticking to him in ways that are, are causing problems for he his campaign. He talks about poverty every single day of the campaign and makes sure that people understand that while he may have made a mistake getting that haircut, it should not weigh the legitimate public policy agenda he has. He's doing the right thing. We're going to take one more question, and then I we're going to wrap up. I just want to get back to the Saints versus Sinners and the Fox versus NPR and ask you if you thought there was any hope for crossing the Great Divide and having a conversation again and how that would happen. Well, well I, I used to think so, uh, but three years ago when I was invited here and you asked me a similar question, I suggested that you invite me to dinner. And that hasn't happened yet, so I'm a little bit more skeptical <laughs> these days than I used to be. But I actually, yeah. but I would say more broadly, this ideological isolation, what did you call it, the me? The uh, daily me. The daily me. Um, I think there is real hope, and it's not going to be solved by ge my generation, or even by Jonathan's or David's. <laughs> um, rather, um, we use 
those of us political professionals in both parties use this media to divide and conquer. We use it to fan the flames of suspicion. We use it to get people angry. We use it to motivate our saints, as I talked about earlier. But what I see among my students, teenagers, people in the early mid-20s, is they use this media in a much, much different way. They go to Craigslist, they go to MySpace, they go to Facebook, and instead of using it to build walls, the way both parties do now, they find this technology as a way to meet people, interact with people, and form relationships with people who they might not have met under other circumstances. Now, a critic will say, oh sure, but what are they talking about? They're talking about sports, they're talking about music, they're talking about girls. Well, when I was a college student, I used a communications mechanism called the telephone. And I did not use it, for the most part, to talk about profound matters of public policy. <laughs> yes, you did, I used, Dan. Okay, yes, I did. you did. <laughs> you did. I, kn I knew him then. <laughs> I, uh, I used it to talk about music and about sports and about girls. And as I got older, I did not stop talking about those things, but began talking about others as well. And as these young people get older, having learned to use the internet to make connections where connections have never existed before, just as they use them for social relationships now, for favorite bands and favorite sports teams now, I think there's tremendous hope as this generation moves into the mainstream of the body politic to use these same, same technologies to bri bridge the partisan divides that our generation has been so uh, talented at creating. I, I, I completely agree with you, but I also think that I, I'm even more hopeful uh, because um, the yearning for a conversation is strong. And I think a lot of the Obama phenomenon is that he, is, he does not trash Bush in his speeches. He has a Republican whom, with whom he worked in the Illinois legislature who is featured in his ads in Iowa right now saying Obama could work across party lines even though we didn't always agree. You know, he could build consensus. Um, and that is a reflection of their understanding that there is a yearning in the electorate to renew the conversation and that people are tired of this hyper-partisanship. So I, I do think that this election is going to see a little bit of a backlash uh, against uh, people are always fighting the last war, and the last war was highly partisan. And, and you're going to see, uh, I think, uh, candidates who succeed will be ones that tone it down and that uh, talk about consensus. And that also says that everybody in this room has a responsibility to demand that kind of dialogue and demand that kind of conversation. If you go back to the Kennedy-Nixon debates, and I would commend them to you to uh, get a tape and take a look at the level of discourse that occurred in those debates compared to what passes for a debate today. It is a real education. So with that, I'd like to thank our guests, Jonathan and Dan. You did a great job. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.